Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to Mile Higher Podcast, episode 139. Today, we're going to do another Unsolved Mysteries episode. You guys have been requesting these over and over so many cases from this series. It's done incredibly well on Netflix, the reboot of Unsolved Mysteries. Um, Today, we're going to be doing one from the second season, though. This one was very intriguing to us. It was called Lady in the Lake, and it is about the case of Joanne Romaine. Her suspicious death. Very suspicious death, I should say. It's very weird. And we have a lot we want to go over here for sure. And I think a lot of you guys like when we do these episodes because so many of you are enjoying this series and either have already seen it and just want to know our thoughts or want to watch this episode before going into watching it because we do have a few extra things, you know, that the documentary leaves out. Today's episode is sponsored by Features, HelloFresh, and Simply Safe. So big thank you to all of our sponsors. And let's go ahead and just get into our intro topics for today. They are all true crime related. So in crazy bitch news, Lori Vallow is back on the scene. <laughs> if you're not familiar with Lori's case or the Daybell case, I should say, um, Lori has been married a couple of times, five times. I think she's had five husbands and several of them have died in just strange ways. And now looking back, it's possible that she could have had involvement of it. So I didn't know they were going to go this far back. And a lot of people have been suspicious about how Joseph Ryan died for a while now. So I'm surprised that they actually took action on this. And he's, they think she really could have been involved in it. Yeah. So the, what kind of stirred this, you know, investigation into Lori in revolving or regarding Joseph's death mm-hmm. is, you know, because for, from what we knew initially he died of an apparent heart attack, mm-hmm. but there's this recording that has made its light uh, recently that basically is of Lori at one of her little you know, cult meetings talking about <laughs> much. how the Bible justifies her use of murder against him. She literally says in these recordings, I, I need to murder him mm-hmm. or I'm going to murder him or something along those lines. And we'll play the exact audio clip for you here in just a sec. But and this falls really in line with what she has done. Like we've heard her um heard of her telling other people that she was going to kill the kids possibly or her husband that she was going like, this isn't the only time she has talked about murder in this free and open way that it's like for God. Yeah. Yeah. So we're kind of getting a glimpse into what she's really like. So mm-hmm. we'll play the clip for you. And after we were divorced, um, he told everybody that I was this lying, crazy Mormon and got up in court and said all these horrible things about me and turned it around to where the judges believed him instead of me. And he was constantly trying to get custody of my three-year-old daughter and just to rub it in my face. And um, I went through a lot of years of, of this kind of hard stuff and I was going to murder him. I was going to kill him, like the scriptures say, like Nephi killed him, just to stop the pain and to stop him coming after me and to stop him coming after my children. And I was just, I just thought I couldn't take it anymore. And I would go through the scriptures and find all the things, like if he comes against you once, if he comes against you twice, if he comes against you three times, then you can kill him. It says it in the scriptures. And I'm like, there it is. There's my answer. I don't want to do anything that's wrong. I did not have a murderous heart. I just wanted to stop the bleeding and stop the pain. 
Isn't that crazy? Okay, I'm obviously not too familiar with the scripture because I didn't grow up in religion at all. But does it say that one, two, three strikes, you can murder someone? No, I mean, it's in the Ten Commandments to thou shall not murder. Like, Yeah, that's what I thought. Thou shall not kill. And so again, they were a part of this kind of extremist Mormon mm-hmm. religion offshoot. Extremist. That they created. Yeah, yeah, extremist. Like they're extreme Mormon. Radical. You know, this isn't typical Mormon beliefs at all. So, but what's crazy about this is this was taken in October of 2018 and Joseph Ryan was found dead in April, 2018 from an apparent heart attack. Mm-hmm. And so she's talking mm-hmm. about this. So there aren't there several ways to cause a heart attack for, for someone isn't, giving them a bunch of potassium one of those ways actually yeah we covered a case yeah i I remember talking about that at one point about how potassium can cause a heart attack so i mean there are ways and look she's crazy enough to do it clearly and she she thinks it's something casual enough that you can just say it clearly she's so deep in her beliefs and her delusions at this point that she thinks she is valid in what she's saying that she thinks it's something to laugh about and be like, oh, it's almost like I was so desperate. I was about to kill him. Like you would say that casually about your husband, but she's dead ass serious. And he's already dead at this point. When right. she's saying this, he's been dead since April. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. why are you still talking about how, how I was going to murder him? Cause it's like a nonchalant thing for her. She thinks it's justified by her religion. So she doesn't think she's done anything wrong, but doesn't she know that that's not how like society sees everyone and I the think fact she that he's already dead. The fact that he's already dead, like just shut your mouth. You don't yeah, need to say it anymore. Well, she's never learned how to shut her mouth. No. Well, I guess she did shut her mouth for a period yeah. there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we've found all types of things that she has said before and after since then. So, so the, right now police are going to be taking another look into the death investigation of Joseph Ryan because Good. his sister, Annie actually brought this, uh, recording to the police and the police heard it and they're like, okay, this is, Mm -hmm. you know, this is worth taking another look at. I mean, maybe we miss something or maybe there's, you know, if you dig it into it a little bit more, you might be able to find the proof and charge her with that as well. I mean, do you think she's capable of doing this? I mean, clearly her, I mean, this was also Tylee's dad, biological father. She doesn't care. She killed Tylee. Yeah. She, she wanted them dead. She wanted her own children dead. I don't underestimate anything with this woman. She would do, anything like she will kill anybody do you th- I, I mean she's clearly brainwashed and yeah. she's clearly probably a psychopath honestly mm-hmm. i mean it seems like something's not right with her head like clearly there's her thinking is not not normal mm-hmm. yeah i would agree something is clearly off not that we're diagnosing her in any way but yeah i would say brainwashed is the right word for it she is brainwashed by her beliefs and by all the shit that chad daybell told her yeah and now both of them are locked up awaiting trial and they're mm-hmm. still investigating. They haven't been formally charged with the murders yet, but they're, they have a slew of other charges mm-hmm. that they're in prison for right now. And obviously they're going to, they're probably still investigating still, you know, cause all that happened this year. So they're mm-hmm. still building a case to bring this, you know, to court. And I mean, they're hopefully going to be prosecuted to the max and never see the light of day again for all the things that they did. But yeah, hopefully there are lawyers right now. So they're going to actually be charged together. They're trying to put their cases together and try them together because they're worried that, you know, if one of them comes first, then that's going to get out to the public like public mm-hmm. and it could affect the case and everything. Mm. So they want to try to bring the cases together because they're under the same conspiracy because they're charged with conspiracy charges right now because uh, they conspired to do all of this together. together. 
So they're fighting to have them separate because that's better for them individually when they actually go to trial. Mm -hmm. But right now the judge denied that. And so far that looks like they're going to be charged together uh, under one case, I guess, or, you know, it's going to be paired. That would be better for everybody involved. I, I believe. Yeah. Um, I wonder when it's going to be. Did they say a no, there's potential no, date? No. no, I mean, they're, they're still they're, they can, I mean, they're going to be on trial for those other charges at some point in the, mm-hmm. in the future. But you know, I think right now they're really pushing hard to try to get those murder charges tacked on. I just as they should. think it's, I mean, I don't, I clearly don't understand. I don't do this for a living, but I feel like there's enough here to charge them. I don't really understand why they haven't been charged. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess I would need a, someone to explain it to me. I mean, you would think that the fact that they found JJ and Tylee's remains on yeah, David's property and just the way they've acted, leaving, fleeing, ref- refusing to talk, finding their belongings in the back of the car. Um, the weird PayPal payment, the way just, I mean, there's so many things. There's so many things. I think they're looking for that physical, you know, if you got the physical, that well, they just have is like their bodies. I know, but to actually tie them to them. Like, did they murder? Know. Just because there's your remains. property though. I, I know, but they could know. be uncovering like tons of shit that they just haven't mm-hmm. released yet. And maybe That's they're so waiting to make such a strong case that by the time they present it yeah. and they actually charge them, they're like, yeah. boom, boom, boom. And this they're, is why, and this is why, and this is why, I mean, DOA. you're so right. You're yeah. so right. That's probably why it's frustrating. Cause I just want, totally. I want justice now. And it's so hard to wait for justice. Sometimes it, you know, you definitely get impatient cause you just want to see them, go down for this as soon as possible. But yeah, I guess we want to make sure there's no fucking way that they could somehow get off or something could go exactly. wrong or think about how much evidence this mm-hmm. investigation has yeah. and how many it's locations true. they've been associated with it's and how true. many people, I mean, just it's trying incredibly to complicated. sort this case, Yeah, you know, so in a way that you can understand is, that's true is very complicated because there's so many tie-ins and from their perspective, I'd understand that they want to make sure that they get this, as right as possible because they do have a ton of media scrutiny. There's tons of people watching and they also probably want it to go as fast as possible so that they look good. So they're probably going as fast as they can. Yeah. So I'll bet you next year we see something big happen with this case. Oh, this case is going to go on for a long time. And it's going to be, I bet you'll be televised and all that as maybe, I don't know as a lot of the, I mean, a lot of it has been recorded and media covered. I mean, will they let, cameras in the courtroom yeah, that's, that's big true. i don't know i yeah. don't know doubt it honestly this is a case with children i honestly doubt it maybe Could well either way i i hope that you know and i am confident that they will be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law and and you know should remain in prison for the rest of their lives that's that's all i gotta say these poor kids did not do anything to deserve what happened to no. them So the next bit of crime news we've got for you is about a fugitive by the name of Leonard Moses. And he's actually been on the run from the law since 1971 when he actually escaped custody. And this past Friday, he was finally arrested after he kind of slipped up in his fake life that he's been living and more about that in a sec. But a little backstory on him. Basically, back in 1968, Dr. Martin Luther King uh, Jr. was assassinated and there was a ton of it was crazy afterwards, as as you can imagine. And Leonard actually, with other people, threw Molotov cocktails at a house and the victim inside the house ended up suffering burns that resulted in their death. And it was a woman named Mary Amplo. And she actually died from pneumonia while recovering from these burns she suffered as a result of the basically bombing of her house. 
That's so scary. Yeah. So Leonard Moses was convicted of first degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. However, at the time, Pennsylvania Supreme Court judges disputed whether Moses, he was only 16 at the time, was too young to make a voluntary waiver of his Miranda warnings and concluded that the case should be remanded for a new trial. And despite winning in court, though, Leonard escaped custody on June 1st, 1971, while attending his grandmother's funeral in Pittsburgh. Damn. Yeah. And after that, he's been completely off. So they allow you to attend funerals? Well, he was 16. So it's like this, you know, he got, he won the ability to do this okay, because of his age and because of, you know, I guess the natures of the crime, even though he was charged with murder, he was still allowed to do this, but yeah, he escaped at his grandmother's funeral Wow, and went on the run. And then he, you know, later on, he assumed this alias as a traveling pharmacist in Michigan. And so he's been a traveling pharmacist under a fake name. You can be, what is years. a traveling pharmacist? Um, I'm not entirely sure, <laughs> but you go to like Walgreens to Walgreens. I, yeah. Well, that's what he did. He worked at CVS. Okay. Yeah. So I guess he worked at CVS and basically he was charged with stealing pills from CVS. So I oh. think, tra- let me look up traveling pharmacist. Cause now you got me wondering what that is. <laughs> traveling pharmacist is exactly what you think it is. It's basically somebody who travels between pharmacy to pharmacy and fills in for like pharmacy techs and things oh. like that. So, or like how there's other, traveling nurses and such like mm, that. Kind right. Of stuff. Right. So I don't think he was necessarily like the pharmacist of a pharmacy, but he was working in different ones, just stealing okay. pills. Wow. And he actually got recently caught this year stealing hydrocodone pills. Oopsie. And after they fingerprinted him, they figured out that his name wasn't really Paul Dixon. That's what he was going by based on fingerprinting him. And they realized that, in fact, this guy was this convicted killer the FBI was looking for named Leonard Moses. Wow. And so they went and raided him at his house 50 years later. That seems really stupid. Like, you'd think you'd lay low, you know, pick a profession. Like, don't steal from your job. Do something mellow where you're not, you can just, like, not caught. Like, why would you do anything else illegal if you had escaped life in prison? Yeah, well, like, he's gotten away with it. So, like, that's, I feel like that's the point. Like, he escaped life in prison. He's probably like, what the, f- I, I can do anything. I escaped life in prison. That's true. That's a good way to see it. Like, they can't catch me for that. If that was me, I'd be like, wow, I really, like, got, lucky. got really lucky. I need to lay the fuck Same. low for the rest of my life. Yeah, I would, like, never leave my house. But I think some people are almost, like, convinced, like, oh, I'm that good. Like, they're not going to catch me. I'm stealing a few pills. Like, what? I fucking That's killed true. someone and no one has me. Like, what That's are a few true. pills going to do? Well, you got to think, too, in this situation, you have to assume a new identity. So mm-hmm. how do you make money? How? What's the fastest way to make money? How do you survive? You do got to, you basically do have to turn to crime to survive. Because when you're running from the law, you can't go get any, like, normal, like, job. Well, he was working at the pharmacy. Well, there was. Could have just been a pharmacist. Well, I think he got. Low. Yeah. Well, he got in early probably before there was all these, you know, checks and everything and or maybe they just believed his identity. I mean, how did right, how does a guy with a fake identity work at CVS? I mean, it's clearly not that hard. Riddle me that, like seriously. <laughs> I don't know, dude. How does He did it though. He's clearly smart. He just happened to get caught. I mean, we've covered cases of people that pose as doctors that aren't or like have faked yeah, their degree right. somewhere. Yeah. Like it's, it's true. Possible it happens to pull all off the shit. time. But I, I just feel like, feel like you would just go ease, just chill, like live a simple life. If you escape life in prison, like damn, but that's just me. Yeah. Seems pretty stupid. So how old is he now? 
uh, well, he was 16 uh, yeah. in 1971. Ooh, math. So if you look at that to now, that's 50. I mean, he's like yeah, 76. He's in his, I mean, he's Damn. an elderly man at this point. So now Moses is facing new charges. He's going to be extradited and put in prison for the rest of his life. Mm, which wow. I mean, he pretty much got to live his whole life. Yeah. Got to serve some time for killing somebody. You can't yeah. just throw things into people's house, even though you're upset, you know? Yeah. And well, hopefully this, I mean, imagine the family of this poor woman that died like yeah. all these years knowing that he's just running around out there. Yeah. That's really upsetting. So at least there's some closure for them there. So, yeah. But yeah, I just thought that was interesting. You know, fugitives on the run. It's like that such is, a, you don't hear of you that very often, yeah, like, especially after that long people that escape and then, because most people what? lay low. Yeah, I guess there's they probably go to a ton like of Mexico or they do what Dexter did and just go off into the forest, yeah. you know? Right off into the sunset on the ocean. <laughs> Hopefully I didn't just spoil anything for anybody, but it's years old. Come yeah. on, people. And it's coming back, right? Yeah, it's coming back. I'm really excited. You there's going to be like fans? a little short thing that comes out. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be like a limited series. Oh, any or Dexter something. fans? Yeah. I bet you there's a lot on this podcast. But that's like a, a great, that show is so great because it gives you this kind of inside look at a criminal's life and so a person that's on the run and trying to evade capture. Well, and yeah. An inside fake a, look, right, a, a fake Hollywood look. look. Yeah. But, but still not like, many criminals are like Dexter. Yeah. I know, but like, <laughs> he's kind of yeah. like the, the Batman or like Robin hood crime, you know? Yeah. Yeah. In a way. Cause Takes he like kills those, for those, good. Yeah. Yeah. What, there's probably people out there like Dexter too. If you think about it, there's probably real life examples of that. Yeah. Well, this guy's clear not. I don't know what he was thinking getting no, I mean, into stealing drugs from a pharmacy. Really not too smart. Nope. Anyway, let's go ahead and get into yes. the suspicious death of Joanne Romaine. Yes, this one's very interesting. But before we do, I'd like to thank our first sponsors for today. Okay. So today we're going to be talking about the case of Joanne Matuk. Her maiden name is Matuk. Her last name is Romaine, her current one at the time that she disappeared. Um, so she was born and raised in Detroit, Michigan, in a suburb of Gross Point Farms. She had four siblings, and her parents were named William and Louise Matuk, and they bought the Woods Beer Store, which is now called Woods Wholesale Wine, in 1957. And the business was in Gross Point Woods, Michigan, and was very successful. Yeah, it's still around today. You can still go shop uh, yeah. woodswholesalewine.com. Oh, yeah, sponsored by. Yeah. Just kidding. <laughs> And this is a really wealthy area with many long-term residents who have been there. So it's kind of like old money kind of situation. And it's the kind of community where everyone knows each other and almost no one ever moves away. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of the it's typical small town USA. Mm -hmm. In 1980, Joanne married a man named David Romaine and they had three kids together. Michelle was the oldest, then Kelly and Michael was their youngest. The family lived in a nice home on Hidden Lane and Joanne was a really good homemaker and mother. She was known for, you know, running a really loving, welcoming home. And she was kind of a second mom to many of her kids' friends. Everyone liked to hang out there. And she really thrived as a mother. Just loved life. I mean, it seems mm -hmm. like she loved her kids, just loved spending time with them, was very close with them. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, just an all-around great mom. Yep. And she was also a devout Catholic. So family was just really important to her. And as she got older, she got even more and more into her religion and went to church every Sunday. And she also went to weeknight prayer services whenever she could. So she was big involved in church. Yeah. I mean, his family and faith was her life. Mm -hmm. And she really, I mean, she was definitely devout is an understatement. Mm -hmm. I mean, she really mm -hmm. believed in, you know, 
God and the Catholic faith was very important to her. Very important. And she was also known as a very cautious person. She did not like going anywhere alone, and she only ever really felt safe when she was at her church, which is interesting. Joanne was also a very social person. She enjoyed going out to lunch with her friends and loved to entertain people at her house. Like I said, she was always hosting the holidays and cooking. You know, I feel like everyone knows someone like this that just their house is so welcoming. They always are making good food. Like they got the grandma status going on, you know? Yeah. Um, Good vibes. Yeah. Yeah. At times she could be a little overprotective to her kids, but it was only because she loved her children so much. She was very nurturing and involved in their lives, a very supportive mom. And they were just a really, really close family overall. Joanne worked at a small boutique as a part-time job, and she was very well-liked by her coworkers. In fact, Joanne was just well-liked and honestly loved by everyone. She was really well-known in this community. But there was a big change in Joanne's life in 2005. Her and David separated after 25 years of marriage. That's a long time. That's how long my parents were together before they separated. And And for a family like that, it Mm -hmm. blows it up. Oh, totally. Blows it up. And and this was kind of the beginning of the end of the Romaine family in a lot of ways. I mean, mm-hmm. it really started creating that divide and people take sides, unfortunately, in, in separation and divorce. So mm-hmm. uh, the family starts pulling apart at this point. Mm-hmm. At this point, they were fighting all the time, too. And according to her daughter, Joanne was just tired of not being happy. You know, it just seemed like they fell out of love and the arguing was just constant. But what really ended their relationship was when David started dating Joanne's best friend. After they got separated, Joanne lived with her three adult children. Their extended family, Joanne's siblings and cousins, also became very close with them at this time. But then in 1994, Joanne's mother died, and this caused a lot of issues in the family because there were a lot of disputes over the inheritance, which was pretty big. Yeah, I mean, they had a really successful liquor business basically mm-hmm. for a very long time. And yeah, they were supposed to split it five ways, but a lot of people thought that was never split fairly, mm-hmm. which I mean, unfortunately, money has the power to grip families apart. Oh, totally. There are so many families that end up fighting over wills. It's really sad. Yeah, to the not point where the yeah. person wanted. And to the to the point of even, you know, wanting to harm another family member. Yeah. So foreshadowing. Yeah. So at one point, Joanne and her brother actually sued their other three siblings and they won and their family never recovered from this because there was just so much fighting and picking sides and it just destroyed them. Yeah. It's sad. Money has the power to rip families apart. Joanne and John, of course, remained very close since they won the lawsuit together. And John actually viewed Joanne as his best friend and relied on her a lot. And then five years after David left, Joanne, who was now 55 years old, had moved on and was living a quiet life with her family focused on, you know, her three children. So that's where we fast forward things a little bit to January 12th, 2010. And this is a very significant day and you'll see why here in a second. But Mm -hmm. on Tuesday, January 12th, 2010 joanne had left home to get gas and she said you know i'll be right back i'm just gonna run down and fill up the car but after leaving the gas station she made the split second decision we believe to go to an evening prayer service at saint paul catholic church also in gross point farms which this wasn't out of the ordinary for her she would pop in whenever she she could every night if she could so she said she'd be right back though she told him she never told anybody that she was planning to do that Mm -hmm. uh, to go to the prayer service but it's not you know Mm -hmm. out of the ordinary for her to do that 
And this night was very, very cold. Temperatures were in the low twenties. I mean, they're up there on, you know, the great lakes. It's very cold up there by Canada. And so this prayer service she went to was at 7 PM and it ended at 7 15 PM. But after this, Joanne never made it back home. So Joanne's vehicle, which was a silver Lexus was found by a police officer abandoned a hundred feet away from Lake St. Clair, which is just kind of on the other side of the road from the church. Basically there's a two lane road or there's two or four lanes of road, sorry, between the actual church and the lake. And the first police officer that showed up just ran the place to see, you know, why is there this abandoned car there? Take a look inside and the car doors were locked and he saw Joanne's purse, which was in the passenger seat, which was weird about this. The officer didn't know was the fact that Joanne never left her purse behind. So, you know, why wasn't Joanne with her purse in her vehicle? And most women never leave their purses behind, you know? Yeah. Especially if you leave your vehicle. Yeah. You know, you're probably going to take that with you. Mm -hmm. What was also weird about finding her purse in the car was the fact that her car keys and cell phone were not with the purse. So it was as if the purse had been left and her keys and cell phone had been taken uh, with her. It's weird to me though, that the first officer didn't think that there was anything suspicious going on. Um, I guess, you know, based on what he saw, it just looked like somebody had left their car there the purse was there. So maybe she's going to come back. But then another officer actually came after the first one left after some time. And this second officer ran the plates as well. And then also noticed while looking at the vehicle that there looked to be footprints leading down a concrete bank or slope towards the lake and assumed that someone was in the water because it looked like there was footprints in the snow. There was snow at this point in time. And it looked like there, somebody had walked down this embankment had fallen on their butt and like put their hands down as they, you know, as you walk down a steep thing in snow or ice, almost scooted off. Yeah. Kind of scooted down the hill a little Mm -hmm. bit and then got back up and walked to the edge of the lake. And so right away, this officer was like, somebody is in the water. We need to start a rest, you know, search and rescue effort to try to find somebody whoever went in the water. Cause that's where the tracks are leading at this point Which into is the lake, how it looks, but it's like, could that be the only, is that the only possibility here? Right. Which they made the ter- determination that it's definitely that. Right. So while the search and rescue efforts getting kicked off, two police officers went to Joanne's home. And according to Michelle and Kelly, they pulled up to the house around 924 PM. Michelle said she saw the lights outside and decided to walk out and greet the police car. One of the officers then told Michelle that Joanne was missing and that they had found her car abandoned at the church, which right away, Michelle was like, something is not right here. Why would my mom just abandon her car? You know, Mm -hmm. so out of character for her too. But what's also very, very weird is the fact that the Lexus that Joanne drove was actually registered to Michelle. So she didn't understand how the police already knew that Joanne had driven to the church that night. That's like a huge thing. Mm-hmm. How would they know that if the cars, re- you know, if they're running the plates, it's going to come back to Michelle. So you'd assume that they're looking for Michelle. But the officers were saying we're already talking about how Joanne was missing when in and reality they hadn't been in contact with Michelle at all. Right, right. right. So she thought that was really weird. She was like, uh, this is registered to me. So you should be looking for me, not my mom. Mm -hmm. How'd you know my mom was driving my car or the car that's registered to me? And it's not like she was reported missing or anything like that. So how would they know something like that? Yeah. It's very, very weird that they knew that information. But when they got the news that Joanne was missing, Michelle and Kelly tried to call their mom's cell phone, but it went straight to voicemail. 
And then they proceeded to call, you know, all the family members mm-hmm. and friends and members of the church to find out, like, did anybody know where she was? Was she with somebody? Yeah, maybe got she got a ride or yeah, something. Went in someone's car to go do an yeah. errand for the church or something like that. Or even like maybe her car battery died or something yeah, like that. That's a possibility. At someone's house or, yeah. Mm-hmm. So they call all around to see if there's, you know, any possibility she could be somewhere with somebody and maybe they just, you know, she wasn't saying for some reason. But unfortunately, no one had seen or heard from Joanne since she left the church service at 7.15 p.m. Nobody knew anything. Michelle then called John, Joanne's brother, her uncle, and told him that there were police at her house saying Joanne was missing. Even though the police told them not to, Michelle and John agreed that they should all meet at the church to see what's going on. Yeah, I mean, why wouldn't they? When they got there, though, the church parking lot was just overrun with police cars everywhere. They had crime scene tape around uh, the Lexus, and it was just absolute chaos. And John actually in the show says it was a shit show when he got there, which was a kind of a weird word to use, I feel like, uh, about a crime scene, you know? And I guess there's just a lot happening, but he specifically said shit show. I thought that was kind of weird. But the fan, and I think part of it is they were just kind of surprised that there was already this massive search and rescue yeah. operation on the lake going on, automatically assuming somebody was in the lake. Which and it was I do their mom. get it does look like that's the most likely at that time w- without really thinking it through. Um, but to be so certain that that's what it was is concerning. Right Within five minutes. Yeah, that's way too fast. Is what the chief decided mm-hmm. or the officers decided. Because of the, the butt print, the handprints and everything. Mm-hmm. And the, yeah, <laughs> it's just crazy the way that the police handled this investigation. But yes. at this point, they've got the Coast Guard out there. They literally brought in all these helicopters. They got divers. They're looking for Joanne's body mm-hmm. in the lake because the theory right off the bat is Joanne abandoned her vehicle, walked down this slope over the lake mm-hmm. to a point where it was deep enough that she could drown. And the lake's only one or two feet for, I think, 100 yards out. So it's a long-ass walk across a partially frozen lake to get to a point where you could actually drown yourself. And that was the suicide theory. And then also to look more into that, it doesn't really make much sense for someone to want to drown themselves. I mean, first of all, drowning yourself is incredibly hard to do, uncomfortable, and it's very rare for anyone to do that. But also in freezing cold water, who does this? And in front of her church. Yeah. Why would she do that? That is, that is so out of her realm, you know, like yeah. what in the fuck? There's no way that this woman would just walk into a frozen lake outside of her church. In like, I think she had three or four inch heels on too. Yeah, she did four inch little booties. Yeah. How, like you saw the ledge that she went down. Mm-hmm. Could you do that? No. Could any, I would fall on my ass. I mean, let alone in flat shoes, you mm-hmm. couldn't even walk down that Slippery. without snow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yet she somehow in heels walks down a steep ass embankment with multiple levels. There's rocks, boulders, crevices to then mm-hmm. walk another 100 or 200 yards to dive into freezing cold water to kill yourself. Mm-hmm. When she wasn't showing any signs in her life, her family said, of being depressed or anything like that, which obviously people don't always show signs. There are plenty of cases where People seem like they're doing okay and people can fake that kind of thing and, you know, try to put on a brave face when they're really suffering inside. So obviously that's a possibility, but it seems 
incredibly unlikely in those circumstances for her to do that. Especially based on the physical conditions that Mm -hmm. she would have had to overcome in order to even get in the water. Yeah. I mean, it was serious. It was snow, Mm -hmm. ice, five foot drop. Mm -hmm. She would have, she would have fell and broke her leg. She would have, you know, there Mm -hmm. would be some blood. There would be, you know, evidence of a fall most likely. Mm -hmm. I feel like you'd see more prints and just more. There wasn't that much at the scene. But officers thought straight off the bat, they're like, all right, somebody must have slid into the water and they're out there somewhere. Mm -hmm. And this was the, this was what they were bringing to the family right off the bat. They're like Mm -hmm. your mother, any other possibilities, not even considering that a crime had been committed Mm -hmm. because according to the police, there was absolutely no signs of a struggle inside the vehicle or in the parking lot or on the way to the lake. Mm -hmm. Even though I was like, honestly, at first look at these footprints, to me, I almost thought like maybe somebody dragged somebody down this Uh because they're like these long, I mean, you can definitely see some footprints, but it just kind of looks like these long Mm -hmm. indentations into the snowbank. It Mm -hmm. it doesn't really look to me like you could clearly see, like it didn't look like a woman's footprints just walking down to the edge of the thing. No. It looked like way more had happened there. Like somebody had gone mm-hmm. in there and tried to maybe or forced some her tracks. to do something at gunpoint yeah. or, you know, it just seemed very staged. Yeah. But because there was no blood, no weapons, there was no proof of foul play. They just automatically went with, uh, she must've committed suicide, even though we have no way to back that up either. But because there's none of the contrary, that's, that's, a wrap. Which we're it. not saying they shouldn't have done that. They absolutely should s- search the lake. Sorry. <laughs> my teeth are so messed up from my gum surgery. I keep stumbling over my words, but they should have searched the lake. That is a good move. Obviously there's right. a possibility that she's right. in there. Maybe it wasn't even a suicide. Maybe she went out to get a ball in the snow. <laughs> I don't know. And, and fell in, I don't know. So obviously it's good to do that, but to, to not do anything else, to not help the family with any other type of search, to not put out flyers, to not consider her a missing person at all, or to consider foul play is just shitty police work. Bottom line. Yeah. To, you know, and this happens so often where the, you know, oftentimes if the evidence looks to appear to be a suicide, that that's Mm -hmm. what they try to, you know, make happen. They're like, okay, this is, this is what happened. Yeah. Here, here's here's how it happened and close case we're done it's easier to do that right for them. versus looking at it and can, like it seems like they don't want to consider the idea that could this be a staged suicide mm-hmm. you know you don't even have a body in this case but in other cases there's even bodies and you know they mm-hmm. don't even consider that possibility that maybe there's other people involved that staged it to look like mm-hmm. they killed themselves mm-hmm. And that's very possible. It definitely happens. It happens all the time. And we see, you know, police departments just calling it a suicide from the beginning. And then that ruins everything because then they don't consider it a crime scene. Yeah. Well, and the problem is, the is that the, the people are investigating these within these departments just don't have the experience or Mm-mm. training to know how to identify this and mm-hmm. think outside the box. That, okay. Maybe this isn't, didn't happen exactly the way that I'm perceiving you know mm-hmm. what what's happening here the first go around so yeah i mean the fact that they were just closing this up and they're telling the family that this is what happened to your mom basically deal with it is pretty disturbing in itself but they ended up calling off the search and all the helicopters around 4 a.m and then they towed joanne's lexus detective lieutenant richard Rosati said he dusted the car for fingerprints and didn't find any usable prints and mm-hmm. when he's asked this question, guys, this is so, so, so sus. sketchy, dude. Yeah. He's just like, 
his eyes are darting around. Like, I can't even believe he was acting that way. You could try to act a little more. He's just like, I don't even know how to describe how he's like looking around blinking. Like he seems like he's almost being aggressive about it. Yeah. He's clearly, clearly lying. Deceiving. Yeah. Cause there, he's literally asked, he's like detective. Mm-hmm. You would think, okay, let's take a look at the vehicle. It's mm-hmm. dust for prints. Let's actually look at the handles. Yeah. You know, if there's a possibility of foul play here, at least rule it out by, you know, actually searching. And they're like, well, we did, but there's no usable prints. Yeah. And the way he said usable prints, and then he kind of like looks around usable. What prints. the hell does that mean? You've that got means, a partial print. Yeah. Probably has pretty decent prints that they chose to throw out which is very suspicious because why would they do that? Are they covering up for something mm-hmm. possibility? They also didn't do any DNA testing on any of the evidence. You would think the purse mm-hmm. test the purse. It's suspicious that the purse is here yet. All of her other personal items aren't here. Yeah. She's not here How about door handles. Yeah. Seats. Yeah. And the purse was ripped. Wow. Oh, it was. Yeah. And the police said I missed that the when they found the purse, it literally had a rip in the side and because it was in the side, oh, right, and not right. the no, handle, the police were like, well, mm-hmm. that was just how it came. No. What? So we didn't think to test it or to look to see maybe why this woman's designer purse mm-hmm. is ripped. Why would it be ripped? Why would it takes a lot to, why would Joanne bags? be carrying around of a ripped designer purse everywhere? That doesn't, doesn't make, make any sense. I mean, dude. possible. Yes, but this was really bad. Like somebody, grabbed the side of her purse and the family and said it. too that that's yeah. not something they've seen right now that was new but the police are so confident in their you know conclusion that this was a suicide that they're mm. like no no evidence no sign of foul play we no need to so test fucked. no need to even look at any other possibilities imagine how frustrating that would be as a yeah. family member like i feel like even if it is a suicide like why aren't you taking as much evidence and pictures as you possibly can right. just in case Right. Like a it, good police, right. Police officer would do, would that. do that. Yeah. Cat, you know, police look force. at everything mm-hmm. because there's always that off chance that you never know. Like who are you to go in there and, and make that decision of mm-hmm. like, this is definitely what happened. I know. Mm-hmm. No, you should definitively like that should be ingrained in every police officer's head. Well, like, that's what makes them look so suspicious at the end of the day. Yeah. Is how quickly they called this a suicide right. when it's clearly not. And let's get into why it's clearly not. Yeah. The other baffling part of this investigation, though, was the fact that police officers who, you know, got to the scene mm-hmm. and investigators did not take pictures of the actual footprints, handprints, they said that were in the snow. Like, why? why wouldn't you do that? Why? You could measure them. You could actually take good photos and then actually build a scale for them and actually see if they would match up with Joanne's. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a huge piece there. Like they huge should be piece. able to, they should be required to prove that it was a suicide. Like, why is it that we get to assume that in any case, even like they should prove that for legal reasons that that's what indeed what happened mm-hmm. just for documentation. Yeah, exactly. Of the like crime scene, you know, processing the scene of someone's death, right? Do it general. all the same in uniform so that you don't make mistakes when yeah. it, it really matters. So no, no footprint experts are ever brought in to look at any of this is just all forgotten about basically. So this really, you know, the handling of the investigation really kind of got mm-hmm. the community fired up because they're like, mm-hmm. all right, the police are clearly on the wrong path. Mm-hmm. And we got to take this into our own hands. Yeah. We need to figure out what happened to her mm-hmm. and where she is, because I think there is some hope that maybe she was out there somewhere still. Mm-hmm. Maybe and she parked and wandered away. Maybe she had a head injury. She slipped on the ice and she's just walking around. You know, anything could happen. Yeah. So it's so important to 
consider all possibilities and put flyers out there, even though maybe it looks like she went in the water. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, so they printed those flyers out and handed them out all over town and people searched everywhere for Joanne. I mean, this community was very upset. Like we said, she was very loved in the community. She was like a mom to so many people. So people were just devastated. The police also continued their search. They did a three day search. In fact, around the area where Joanne disappeared. And this lake, just so you know, has no current. And on the night that she disappeared, Joanne was wearing all black, including her coat and her high-heeled shoes. So if she was in the water, they would have been able to find her. They even brought in a specialty diving team that searched for three additional days. And the diving team said this was the most extensive search that their team had ever done. And they're going through icy, cold, dark water. This is not an easy task. But they were out there, you know, working for days yeah. and still what found nothing. What a job nothing. that is. I know. That's like, talk about a, That's some a spooky work. job, man. Yeah. Going through dark water, feeling for, oh, I can't even imagine. And the partially frozen water and chunks of ice in the area where Joanne actually disappeared into or where the prints were, um, were undisturbed, which is like, makes no sense. And there was no evidence that it had ever been disturbed or moved by any person stepping onto it or by being dumped into the lake potentially. Yeah. Even that, I mean, the area around where the police say she went into the water, there was no evidence that anybody went in the water at all. Mm -hmm. They're like, there's clearly nobody like there would be physical proof, Mm -hmm. ice crack. There'd be actual proof that somebody had walked across this lake and there was not. So of course her family, like we said, they still believed that she did not commit suicide, especially once they're not finding anything that's just confirming it even more that she's not in the lake. I mean, she was a devout Catholic. So this is like literally against her faith. And her family said she just would never do that. She would never leave her kids behind. They were everything to her. She also didn't take any medications and had no history of depression or any mental illness in her past. So they were just baffled by this explanation from the police. Plus, Joanne was a really cautious person, and her kids said that she would never go near icy water. It's just out of character. It's weird. Why would she even go near this lake when her church was she right would never. there? No. She would never just be walking down. by. The, it's physically impossible for yeah. her to, mm-hmm. pretty much. She probably would have slipped. Too. I feel like you would have seen signs of someone falling or something. Yeah. <laughs> I would fall going down that I mean, at yeah, night in absolutely. the snow. In heels. Even in boots. just doesn't make any sense. That's like a, yeah, like anybody that would try to go down that would be at the bottom mm-hmm. there. It would yeah. not have made it 100, 200 yards into the lake. There's no way. So as the days went by and there was no sign of their mom, the kids became more and more confident that someone had taken her. That's what it's really starting to look like. And you'd think that after they searched the lake and didn't find anything, they would reconsider this suicide theory. But even without a body, the police continued to conclude that Joanne Romaine had committed suicide and effectively just closed her case. Not not a good idea at all. That's just bad police work. Mm-hmm. But Joanne's oldest daughter, Michelle, did not give up. And she decided that because she was the oldest, she really had to take charge of the situation and find her mom. So she hired private investigators to do the work that the police were now refusing to do. The first investigator that Michelle actually hired was named Salvatore Rastrelli. And he is an investigative consultant who specializes in crime scene investigation as well as water searches. So he has an extensive background and experience in actual this exact situation where, mm-hmm. you know, cases look like suicide, but they end up being something else. And, you know, people going missing in the water as well. Mm-hmm. And right off the bat, Salvatore, after looking at the case, was very, very skeptical 
of the local police's investigation, Mm -hmm. especially after the police chief, Dan Jensen, claimed that he knew Joanna committed suicide within five minutes. He literally went on the interview and said this. That's so fast. To hear a police chief say something like that Mm -hmm. is just irresponsible, honestly. Mm -hmm. And this guy, Salvatore, he talked about in the documentary that, or I guess the show, that he would only take a case if he was sure that there was no way that this was a suicide or that there was a good chance that it wasn't, you know, he only takes on certain things. What an interesting area to work in specifically. I feel like it's such an important one though. It's so important. And these cases are so difficult and mucked up often because if they make that call that it's a suicide too early, then it just ruins everything. They just, we saw this with the Christian Andriacchio case when we were there, you know, just seeing how the police, made that call so quickly. And because of that, a lot of things were missed. The crime scene was fucked. I mean, just so many things. So it's so important to have people that really can specialize in this type of thing and go in and see when a situation is just wrong. And that's exactly what Salvador does. Salvatore, he's a very interesting guy, I thought. Yeah. And it's important to note too, that, you know, it's never a good sign when the actual head of the police is coming out and saying, Mm -hmm. you know, just reaffirming this theory that it was a suicide and instead Mm -hmm. of actually, you know, leaving it open to other possibilities and just hearing out what the family wants to look at. That's what always baffles me is why are they so like, we got to close this and and forget, basically put it, brush it under the rug and move on when the family's literally begging you and pleading with you like, Hey guys, there's something not right about this. Mm-hmm. We knew our sister. Like, why aren't they taking that more mm-hmm. seriously? Why aren't they willing to open these cases and be like, okay, the family wants us to take another look at this. Yeah. Why do they shut it down? Why do they push the family away and just be like, stop it. Like, this is what we've, mm-hmm. we decided you got nothing else to say to us, even though they have literal evidence that could completely reverse this. That's what I was going to say too, is it's one thing, you know, obviously they can't just investigate it because a family feels that way, but there's plenty of evidence for that being most likely the, what happened, you know, it's just odd that that's completely dismissed. And that's what makes this case look so sketchy and why so many people feel that this is probably a cover up. why we feel that way. Let's continue. Straight away, though, Salvatore believed that there's no way she went into the water. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was very, very obvious to him that, you know, they would have found her for sure. I mean, you have a diving team, you have helicopters everywhere. The The water is, you know, you can see to the rocky bottom. It's shallow in a lot of areas like mm-hmm. she was wearing all black. There's just no way that after all of the searching and stuff, if she had really committed suicide mm-hmm. that, you know, they would have found her. So the fact that they hadn't found her just completely made him think okay we got we got to look at this as a murder possibly because or an abduction Mm -hmm. and so that was the route he started going with the investigation in addition to salvatore rastrelli michelle and kelly hired another investigator actually a retired fbi agent named bill randall uh, to take a look at the case and the first thing that he did and the way he started his investigation was by getting joanne's cell phone records because cell phone records in any case provides a lot of clues can really help help you put the timeline together of what happened to this person. And that seems like a very logical step that I feel like even, I mean, I guess in the police's case, there's no reason to go pull cell phone records, but I just feel like that's, that's kind of important because the cell phone's missing and we don't have a body. So why wouldn't you want to go maybe ping the cell phone, try to figure out where she is or, 
you know, in, in the remote possibility, maybe she didn't drown in the lake. Like maybe she is out there somewhere. Like makes you think they don't want to solve it. It really does. So they get the cell phone records and the week before she disappeared, they found that Joanne had called and left a voicemail at a security company looking to hire an investigator. And Bill believes that Joanne was actually trying to hire an investigator because she was being followed or threatened in some way. And they actually found evidence of this through her phone records. After finding out this information, Michelle told Bill that Joanne was actually acting strangely in the weeks leading up to her disappearance, like she was nervous about something. Joanne's brother, John, also noticed that Joanne seemed very anxious, and he said she usually told him everything, and when he tried to ask her what was wrong, she refused to say. And John's impression of this is that Joanne, there was something that she was hiding that she couldn't tell her family members because it might put them at risk, which I do find a little bit suspicious that he's... He's thinking that, but Bill called Joanne's work to talk to her coworkers and the owner of the boutique that she worked at on January 7th and 8th, just a few days before she disappeared. A coworker said Joanne received more phone calls than normal. And whenever she'd get these calls, she'd go somewhere private to talk to them, which was very suspicious considering she never did that before. So I think, and that's probably why they noticed. Cause I feel like most people don't even notice what their coworkers mm. doing on the cell phone. Mm-hmm. But the fact that she did this was very suspicious. Bill was also able to find out that Joanne was worried someone was getting her mail from the post office somehow, and as well as someone just following her around town. She was also worried that maybe somebody had hacked her cell phone or tapped it in some way and was you know, listening into her conversations or looking at her messages, which is all very suspicious. Like People don't just do that, Mm-mm. or you know, that doesn't fall in line with suicide at all either. No. And Kelly remembers her mother telling her that she believed she was being followed by different people each day. So, I mean, that was probably what was happening. And with Bill's help, Michelle put together a timeline of the day Joanne disappeared. At 6 p.m. that evening, Joanne dropped off her son Michael at their house, and she told him she was going to go get gas and be right back. At 6.25 p.m., she arrived at the gas station to fill up her car, and the manager, Mike, he would go out there and actually fill her tank for her so that she didn't have to get out of the car because it's freezing cold. And he remembers just having a nice, pleasant conversation with her as they always had when she came to the gas station. Instead of going back home after getting gas, Joanne decided to go to a prayer service at her church, which started at 7 p.m. These prayer services were generally pretty small services, only about 10 to 15 people. And someone sitting in the front of the church near the altar remembered seeing Joanne there. And they also saw her leave from the row near the back when the service was over around 7.15 p.m. Bill also talked to several other witnesses, which verified that Joanne had, in fact, been at the prayer service from 7 p.m. to 7.15 p.m. when she left. At 7.20 p.m., five minutes later, a witness heard the alarm going off on Joanne's Lexus and saw the lights flashing for about 15 seconds. Mm. It looked as if she had just, you know, turned on the panic alarm on your car. It starts beeping and that would be the go-to move, right? If someone abducted you outside of your car or was attacking you or something, right? Makes a lot of sense. Another witness said that she was one of the last people to actually leave the church that night. And she didn't like being in the church parking lot alone when it was dark out. So she looked around as she walked around the church to her car. She left at about 7.35 p.m. and was sure the church parking lot was completely empty, this witness. And even though Joanne's car wasn't there at 7.35, at some point, it was returned and parked in the almost the same spot Joanne had parked when she had initially arrived for church that night. At 7.50 p.m., another witness saw a man wearing a scarf running along the shore of the lake. 
that is definitely suspicious. See somebody running down there yeah, by the lake that like, makes comp- yeah. or, or doing something in there that, that, that would definitely be suspicious. Yeah, definitely suspicious. You'd think all of these things would have led to an investigation. Yeah. And it was verified that the man with the scarf was doing this because they found a scarf. The police police got the scarf and did not test it. Didn't even, didn't even really think verifying to look to the see. witness statement. No. It's insane. No, they ended up donating it to charity. Donating. When the case is still open and active too, that should have been evidence. Like that witness saw that. And it's that so obvious. The you see that type of sketchy shit all the time. Again, I'm going to bring up Christian's case, but remember they would just lose evidence, just lose the knife, just lose things. Yeah. yeah. Or give it away, throw it out. I've seen people in cases where they just throw shit out. It's yeah. so weird. No, it smells like corruption. Mm-hmm. That's what it smells. It like. is corruption. Yeah. So at 8.58 p.m., Lieutenant Andrew Rogers, who was the police officer who first saw the abandoned car, ran the plates. And he decided no action needed to be taken. Later, he confirmed that he hadn't noticed any footprints leading to the lake. An hour later, at 9.58 p.m., Officer Keith Colombo was the second officer to run the Lexus's plates. And he also saw imprints on the snow in the embankment across the street, about 75 feet away from the abandoned car. So he decided to walk across the street and check it out and didn't see any footprints walking back to the parking lot. So he just assumed that someone was probably in the water. The police claimed the investigation didn't begin until after the plates were run a second time around 10 p.m. However, this is suspicious. Michelle and Kelly were sure the police arrived at their house at 9.24 p.m. to tell them Joanne was missing. Cell phone records show that they were calling their mom's phone between 9.30 and 9.45, which directly contradicts the police's timeline. What? That's fucking crazy. So that tells us, I mean, if that is all true, they that already tells us knew. they already they have inside information. They, they know it's who it is mm-hmm. and they already have a narrative mm-hmm. that they're supposed to roll with. It was all pre-planned. Yeah. Also the coast guard records show that they were contacted by the police at nine 30 PM records show that the coast guard crew was launched at nine 38 and arrived on scene to search for Joanne remain at nine 51. That how would they know to be searching for somebody if the police aren't even starting their investigation yet? That doesn't make any sense at all Mm -hmm. either. However, handwritten reports from the coast guard do say that they were contacted at 10 35 PM. So there's some uh, inconsistencies there, but none of these inconsistencies were enough to matter to the police apparently because to them, the case was closed. How irritating. I just don't just get a it. Disgrace. Just don't get it. You're here to protect and serve. You're literally just missing this obvious murder. It's so it's so frustrating, and mm-hmm. I'm sure I can't even imagine people actually have to deal with this type of situation. Like how I'd be so angry. I'd be like yeah. storming the police. Beat the fuck yeah, out of like, everyone. What is? I'd be so mad. What's wrong with you? Like why aren't yeah. you looking at these inconsistencies? Mm-hmm. Aren't you supposed to be investigators? Like investigate the inconsistencies. Prove us wrong. Like if you're so confident in your theory, then prove that this is wrong, but at least investigate it. Mm -hmm. That's what our money is going to, to these police departments is to investigate crimes, potential criminal activity. So Mm -hmm. super, super frustrating. But on Saturday, March 20th, 2010, Michelle got a call from a detective who left an urgent message for her to call back. When she listened to the message, her heart sank. She knew what he was going to say. That day, her mother's body had been found by two fishermen on Bablo Island in Amherstburg, Ontario, about 35 miles from where the police believed Joanne had entered the water. 
You'd okay. think that would end the whole debate about her entering the lake at all, but it didn't. How do you get 35 miles down river? So yeah, that's to give you some to context, this lake that actually has a channel, a shipping channel, which basically turns into the river, mm-hmm. which runs into the uh, Great Lakes, I think. Mm-hmm. And so she was down just off of the coast of Detroit. And, you know, that's a long ways to travel from this lake that has no current. Mm-hmm. She'd right. have to get so far out there or the body would have to, you know, float so far, move. And it would have had to move really fast or the searchers would have found her. Right. Exactly. That's a great point. There was nothing that would have moved her into that mm-hmm. that river that quickly mm-hmm. without yeah. somebody finding her body. So There's you think that no would just way. end that argument, but yeah. it didn't. That's a crazy thing. Yeah. They still tried to argue that her body did make it all that way. Right. And unfortunately, her body was found in advanced stages of decomposition. Mm-hmm. Her legs were covered in algae, and there was some zebra mussels even attached to Wow. To her, yeah. Dr. Jeffrey Jensen, a forensic pathology professor, said her body had likely been in the water for a while based on the decomposition, and the cause of death was probably by drowning. But he wasn't sure whether or not she was dead from the drowning or if she was dead prior to being put in the water. Mm-hmm. He had no idea. Especially because this was a case of dry drowning, which is really interesting. This is where the lungs are filled with air instead. There's no water. Yeah. Yeah. There's no water. It it can happen in drownings. It's just dry drowning. And this also makes it so the person is buoyant They're They float easier. So there's a way bigger chance that she would have seen been seen floating on top of the water. And when they found her, she was floating, I believe. Yeah, well, that's how they found her. Fishermen mm-hmm. found yeah. her. So, was, yep. So, it, it really doesn't make any sense. So, as a result of the autopsy, they listed her death as undetermined, meaning they're not able to basically prove it was suicide or prove it was murder, but that it's undetermined. That's that's what cases should be. Why is mm-hmm. it that the medical examiner's reports have a good system for mm-hmm. this, where at least they don't close the book on mm-hmm. the possibilities if they're not one hundred percent certain? Yet the police are able to just go and close shit at will. When it should be, be un, to, it should right. be open and undetermined mm-hmm. until somebody fresh eyes get on it and they figure it out. Like whether it's one or the other, I it agree. shouldn't be this like limbo, you know, mm-hmm. now that the family had the actual autopsy report and they had, you know, the proof that this was an undetermined death, they brought in another investigative person, actually Scott Lewis, who's an investigative reporter who retired after a 25 year career. And he joined the case as a private investigator And Scott actually took Michelle out to the spot where her mother had been found. They were able to use GPS coordinates to find the exact spot down in the Detroit River on the Canadian side of Boblo Island, which a little background on Boblo Island. It's a very historic part of Detroit. There was actually an amusement park there at one point from 1898 to 1993. Uh, There was this amusement park there. Um, It's now been turned into, you know, buildings and uh, homes and things like that. This trip to Boblo Island really just solidified in Michelle's mind that my mother did not get here on her own. This is way too far. Plus, if she had, somebody would have found her way, way sooner. Some other interesting things that the investigators they hired found was that when Joanne's body had actually been recovered, car keys were zipped inside her coat pocket. All of her coat pockets were zipped and closed, and the front of her coat was zipped up to her chin which right away Michelle knew her mother would not wear her coat like that. So this made no sense whatsoever. Also, Joanne was found still wearing all of her clothes, including her jewelry and shoes. And the thing about her shoes was that they were fully intact 
and barely even scuffed, just a little bit of algae on them. So if she had drowned herself and had gone down this embankment, fallen over, walked over all these rocks and whatnot, you would think her nice shoes would be at least scuffed up, right? There'd be some damage to them. There'd be some signs that she went on this long journey and, you know, this is how we found her. But everything was like in better condition than you would expect. What also really stuck out to Michelle especially was the fact that Joanne's rosary and her cell phone were never recovered. And she believes that both of those should have been in her coat pockets zipped up if she had drowned herself. So the fact that, Mm. of course, the cell phone's missing because cell phones can be tracked. Cell phones have tons of data on it. And, you know, that's what you would do in that case. Yeah, you would take that from somebody if you abducted them. Mm -hmm. So that that really clicked in her head. And if you remember, we were talking about how Joanne's purse was ripped up, right? Mm hmm. Well, when they did the autopsy, they found that Joanne had two bruises on her upper left arm, which likely occurred before she died. And according to Michelle, this is the same place that she carried her purse. Mm. So it makes sense for her to have two bruises there because somebody attacked her from that side, pulled out her purse or tried to grab her arm, Mm. potentially causing those bruises. And older women bruise easier in general too. So someone could have even even like just grabbed her forcefully and caused a bruise. Yeah. Like grab you, like pinch your arm with Mm -hmm. your hand. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So it just made absolutely no sense to the investigators or Michelle that the police didn't DNA test the purse. I mean, the purse was ripped. She now has bruises. So why wouldn't you DNA test that? The private investigators also were very skeptical about the fact that she had gone and filled up her gas tank that night. It makes no sense. Yeah. If you were going to take your life, why would you do that? Yeah. Absolutely not. That where would she, why would you stop for that? Why would that be on your mind? At this point, it became very clear to Michelle that her mother was abducted after she left church that night and the abductor pushed her into her car and drove away with it. And after she was killed, her body was dumped somewhere along the Detroit river. And then the killer then put her mother's purse back in her car, put the tracks in the snow leading into the lake in order to stage a suicide scene. It seems pretty obvious it like, does. to anyone that this is what happened. Yeah. I feel like most people out there who watched this episode mm-hmm. probably are thinking right away that this was not a suicide. Yeah. I'd love to know your thoughts, by the way, on this. And for the police to be so sure of that is just beyond sketchy. And more and more things come up here that make you think this is definitely oh, yeah. a murder. Yep. It's important to note, too, that... At this point, all of the Romaine family members and siblings believe that mm-hmm. Joanne was abducted and murdered mm-hmm. at this point. So Michelle, you know, has started thinking about, okay, well, now that I know she was murdered, who did it? And so Michelle actually had some suspects of her own that she wanted the police to take a look at. One of these suspects on Michelle's list was her own father, David, and she knew that things were still not good between them. And what's interesting is he declined to be interviewed for unsolved mysteries as well. He, yeah. he declined to even be on the show at all, which I think is very suspicious, honestly, mm-hmm. like why not? If you're mm-hmm. nothing to do with this, why not support your, yeah. I mean, it's pretty selfish. You could, I mean, I understand maybe he doesn't care about her anymore because they're not married, but this is still the mother of your children. So when you were with for 25 years, you'd think you'd want to help the kids by being part of this. So yeah, I agree. That is pretty odd. Investigators have looked at David Romain and they have come back and said there's no evidence to suggest that he was involved in her disappearance or murder at this time. They have no reason to believe he could have been involved. Another possibility that Michelle believed could be a reason for her mother's murder 
was the fact that there was people out there that might want to take revenge on Joanne uh, to get back at Uncle John. Because John kind of has a sketchy past and he's owed money to people and business mm-hmm. dealings over the years. Um, and he was on the show and did talk, but he did say some strange things. Well, okay. Yeah. Let's clarify what that means. He he acted a little weird, Josh and I thought. Just a tad, tad bit. Yeah. I'm definitely not saying he's... It could just be his personality too. Yeah. Like, I, I think know. he's honestly, it was just from a place of feeling guilty that if it were somehow related right. to him, he would feel bad. Cause he, when he was talking about it, he said, yeah, you know, there's people that would want to hurt me. Um, and maybe the biggest way to hurt me would be to go after my sister. And I do owe these people money, but it's not my fault. And I can't help if people I can't do that. control, I can't it control it. Yeah. That's what he said. It was so quick to be defensive about that. Like defending himself in the situation, which I get though, you know, that a lot of people are going to be watching this and scrutinizing you. Maybe he's just trying to, I wouldn't say that he was like, sketchy as in maybe he did something yeah but the interview yeah i agree it was a little it was a little weird but i mean i think the whole thing has just been really painful for them and he doesn't want to you know implicate himself in any way well especially if he he there's people he's connected with yeah at some point past business associate i mean we don't know the people he's involved with so yeah maybe he's afraid they'd come after him if he were to go right. too strong on that theory a, or yeah that's I mean, a great we just point. don't know that's a great point and i mean it's important to remember that she was like his best friend like mm-hmm. they were really really close yeah good relationship there's no reason for why he would do anything to her be involved in no. her disappearance at all and, the, and there's nothing that we've been able to find either that really mm-hmm. would say otherwise. So so the suspect that Michelle believed was most likely the one that committed the murder of her mother was Joanne's cousin, Tim Matuk. And Tim is a police officer. Mm-hmm. And him and Joanne had a falling out several years before. After the whole inheritance thing, Joanne and Tim no longer had a relationship at all. So there was a big falling out over money, it seems. Joanne at one point actually met with a paralegal named Nancy Barish before she disappeared and said she thought it was her cousin Tim who was following her or someone working with Tim. Joanne even said Tim had told her, if someone wanted to get rid of you, they could do it and you would never be found. Mm. That's a very odd statement to say to your family or anyone for that matter. The last time Tim spoke with Joanne was in October of 2009. He called Joanne and they got into a heated argument. Michelle and Kelly heard their mom's side of the conversation. Joanne was very upset and she was screaming at Tim, demanding to know how he had gotten her number and telling him to never call her again. Apparently during this conversation over her, Tim was yelling back, but they couldn't hear what he was saying. Joanne told him to stay away from her and her family and hung up from that call. It's very... I mean, there's probably something going on there. Serious. Yeah. Yeah. She then said to Michelle and Kelly that if something were to ever happen to me, look to Tim. When people say things like this, it's just such a slam dunk. I mean, come on. It is so Tim. Tim. He's so sketchy too. this guy. The video clips of him. It just seems he just seems like he's wigging out when they're interviewing him. Well, I mean, the whole fact that he's a police officer, when you connect the dots there, mm-hmm. you're just like, whoa, this this makes a lot more sense now. Yep. If he is the person, then mm-hmm. it makes sense why the police did what they did. You know, mm-hmm. When Tim was interviewed by investigators and they talked about this conversation with Joanne, he said that he had called Joanne because he was angry at her. 
And he claimed Joanne and told her brother Bill that all of their brother John's problems were Tim's fault, which I'm like, okay, doesn't really make that much sense, but okay. Mm -mm. Apparently after this conversation though, Michelle had driven Joanne to the family's wine store to talk to her brother Bill. And Joanne and Bill were mostly estranged, but she still wanted to talk to him about the call she had had with Tim. Cause yeah, Tim's like almost threatening her, you know, or is threatening her. Michelle waited outside. And when Joanne returned, she was even more upset and she refused to talk about what had happened inside the store. Joanne asked Michelle to take her to church after so she could pray. And Michelle had never seen her mother so afraid and knew she had seen or heard something very frightening. Bill later told investigators about the conversation. He claimed that he had told Joanne he wanted to make amends and that it was a calm conversation that only lasted a few minutes. Joanne told Bill not to trust him and Bill didn't understand why. He thought Tim was a good guy and he said he had no reason not to trust him. But after Joanne's body was found, John asked him not to attend Joanne's funeral service and Tim didn't go. Mm, Hmm. That's really telling. Yeah. To me, I feel like John might know more than he's t- he said, but that's just me. No, it seems that way for sure. So Michelle really thought that perhaps there was something going on, you know, a major issue between Tim and John and her mom kind of got in the middle of, you know, her brothers try to like be the peacekeeper and maybe, you know, it just got way, way out of control. But apparently the private investigators didn't find any evidence that Tim had anything to do with Joanne's abduction and murder. And he said he was on duty that night as a cop and had witnesses to prove this alibi. It's also kind of suspicious as well. I mean, he was mm-hmm. on, he was working that night. Mm-hmm. I don't think in the exact area she was in, but definitely something to know. And the police did know about a lot of this family turmoil. They did know that the family was having these problems, but they just thought, you know, all of the stress between her siblings just caused her to commit suicide. They just used that narrative to mm-hmm. back up their suicide theory. So when things were not, you know, looking good for the family and the police were just like, this is a closed case, Michelle and her family sued the Gross Point Farms and Gross Point Woods Police Departments and other defendants for conspiracy to cover up Joanne's murder. And during the discovery, they finally had access to all the police records about the investigation. One startling detail, though, had to do with Joanne's car keys. The spare set of keys had gone missing from their house about a month before she disappeared. The day after she went missing, the police found that set of spare keys at the police station with no record of where they came from. Meanwhile, the main set is inside Joanne's coat pocket. Let's review that again. One month before she goes missing, her spare keys go missing as well. And then they're found in the fucking police department. Just magically showed up. Okay. What on earth? That makes no sense. Not at all. They also found a witness statement from a man named Paul J. Hawk. On the night Joanne disappeared, Paul was driving along Lakeshore Road when he saw two men and a woman on the side of the road. He said the woman was heavy set with dark hair, wearing all black, and she was sitting motionless on the brake wall of the lake slumped over. Paul saw two cars parked illegally on the road, and a man was standing near each car. One of them motioned for him to drive through, and he actually got a good look at one of them when he drove by, and he was pretty sure that that man or one of them was Tim Matuk. Mm-hmm. Paul talked to the police for 40 minutes and gave a written statement. Investigators deemed him not credible and ignored his claim. Maybe because it's about one of their officers, mm-hmm. Tim Matuk. Yep. That's going to open up a can of shit for their whole department. Yep. So of course you're going to ignore that. Mm-hmm. Even though that, that statement's probably hundred percent credible. Yep. 
Also, days before she disappeared, unnamed sources told investigative reporters that Joanne had a meeting with the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office, and a spokesperson for the FBI Detroit headquarters will not confirm or deny that this meeting actually took place. Whoa. That's creepy. Just consider that possibility is Mm -hmm. definitely eye-opening. Yeah. Also, Gross Point Farms Police Chief Dan Jensen has defended the investigation, every decision that the police have made so far. He has denied that there were any questionable police practices going on in this case. How frustrating. That is, because any other police officer out there would look at this and be like, yeah, there is definitely some missed things here. Just anyone, just yeah. a human with yeah. like basic common sense, I feel. Right. Seriously, if you anybody can just watch this and be like, all right, guys, you definitely fucked up on this one. Like you, you missed some things here. Mm-hmm. Despite the many lingering questions and inconsistencies in this case, possible negligence or corruption, the case against the Gross Point Farms and Gross Point Woods police departments were dismissed by the of court. Course. Of course, they get no help. Yep. So there could be serious corruption happening in these police departments, which most likely there is based mm-hmm. on the evidence and what we know. And yet we, they're going to continue. It's going to continue there because these things aren't getting, you know, they're not getting the consequences they need. No, to, they're never handled properly, never dealt with properly. So it continues just on dismissed. Mm-hmm. Really? You're not even going to look at the evidence that they have. So this kind of shut down their only options. The only other option was to sue the cities at this mm-hmm. point. So the estate of Joanne Matuk Romain filed a lawsuit against the city of Gross Point Farms, the city of Gross Point Woods, and other officials. And this was dismissed. In August 2019, a three-judge panel in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit in Detroit unanimously ruled in favor of the city and its police department. They also overturned a lower court's ruling that the city couldn't seek to recover its attorney's fees related to the lawsuit. That's horrible for them, for the family. Mm -hmm. But the opinion filed in the suit in August 2019 says, according to Joanne Matuk, remains a state, two local police departments and many officers covered up Joanne's murder. The alleged plot required duping other officers, the U.S. Coast Guard and Canadian authorities. The motive? to help a friend who sold the officer's alcohol at prices cheaper than Costco. What at first sounds fanciful is moored by some odd facts. For example, Joanne's daughter swears that an unidentified officer questioned her about Joanne before the police suspected Joanne was missing. Another officer had Joanne's spare key that allegedly went missing a month before her disappearance. That said, a reasonable jury could not return a verdict for the estate. As a result, we affirm the district court's decision to grant summary judgment to the defendants. So obviously they're disappointed by the outcomes of the courts, but it seems pretty clear that they're, you know, fighting for justice for her murder Mm -hmm. and they're not going to stop. No, they're not going to stop. And thankfully she has family that cares enough to keep fighting because clearly this was not a suicide. Yeah. Come on. And I, I hope one day, somebody actually, you know, in the court system takes a look at this seriously Mm -hmm. and sees how obvious this is that this was not a suicide and that there is probably police corruption or cover up happening in this case. But that is kind of where we leave off. That's really all there is to go over at this point. Um, It's unclear whether we'll see any more movement in this case or if it'll just remain you know, technically closed. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's gonna be difficult to get the police to take another yeah. look at this. I mean, if there's corruption happening, which it clearly looks like there is, 
you're going to have to root that out first before mm-hmm. you can actually get somebody to look at it, you know, fairly and, and really think about all the possibilities here. I mean, at least unsolved mysteries covered it. That probably yeah, has brought huge. a lot of fire and pressure to the police department, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And we'll actually link, uh, they have a Facebook page, I believe, and some other information uh, in the description. If you want to, you know, look into this further or help support the family and their, you know, search for justice because I'm sure they could use it. And I mean, I just hope for the family's sake that they, they get the justice they deserve because yeah. somebody's out there Real that resolution. their mother. Yeah. Yep. And that's the scary thing. Well, let us know what you guys think in the comments. Maybe you have a theory that we didn't cover or you thought of something. Just let us know. Yeah. I'd be really interested to hear what your guys' thoughts are on this or, you know, I think for the most part, we're all kind of, thinking the Mm -hmm. same thing but i think most of them are gonna feel the same way as us definitely but yeah let us know your thoughts and yeah we'll go ahead and end today's episode there thanks for joining us for another episode of the mile higher podcast if you enjoyed it make sure you you know thumbs up on youtube subscribe check us out on spotify and apple podcasts but until next time remember to always take your mind a mile higher